Today's class is on monasticism. Monasticism is an institution that existed within the church since the New Testament and continues up to today. It is a life specially dedicated to ascetical effort and prayer, usually um, with kind of not becoming married, uh, fasting, ascetical efforts being difficult, uh, vigils and, and, and uh, efforts, fasting efforts to try to overcome the passions and lead the person into closer communion with God. Uh, sometimes good works and living apart from other people. Although we have monasticism documented in the New Testament, the earliest uh, main historical figures come in the late 3rd century and in the 4th century. The leading uh, figures or sort of pioneer figures that, that are most well known are St. Anthony the Great who lived in Egypt. He was the son of landowners who decided to uh, live an ascetic life being taught by ascetics that already existed there, but then went out and lived in the desert by himself uh, to fight the demons. He's sometimes known as the first monk of the world. He began his ascetic life in the late 3rd century, uh, before the Diocletian persecution. As always, you see, it's just, in his case especially, um, it's, it's something that takes place prior to the persecutions, and especially prior to the um, um, conversion to Christianity of the Emperor Constantine. The same can be said for the uh, another person, the monk Pacomius. Uh, St. Anthony is sort of seen as the uh, leader, or pioneer of, of life in the withdrawal, life of, of a hermit living by himself in the desert. Pacomius sort of pioneered the um, kind of organization of monks living together in common life, or what's sometimes known as Kenobitic monasticism from Kini uh, Bios, uh, the Greek word. Pacomius was a pagan who, during the persecutions, was uh, helped by the, by the Christians and afterwards decided to become a monk in the desert. And, but organized the monks who gathered under him into a, a unified community and, and uh, under sort of certain rules of practice and we have uh, some of those rules of Pacomius. Other types of monasticism uh, <coughs> developed also in Egypt in the, as these Pacomius and Anthony both were in Egypt and there's a sort of anchoritic type monasticism, which is where you have monks living somewhat like hermits, but as in but in communities of hermits, where they would live in their own cell and then gather together on Sundays and feast days to have church together. And this uh, this type of monasticism you see in the area around Nitria um, and, and Skeet. This is 
this anchoritic monasticism of, of Nitria, Skeet, and, and the cells is recorded in the uh, sayings of the Desert Fathers, in the short, these little stories. They have a very vivid picture of them, of that type of life. This, this kind of um, loose organization also finds its way into Palestine in the 5th and 6th uh, centuries where monks lived in the desert in groups in, under uh, St. Saba and others and then also there's some um, Cenobitic monasteries that also are in Palestine and, and these so this kind of gives you the three basic types the, the hermit or where the monk lives in isolation the Cenobitic is an organization and the kind of loose collection. There's also um, in the 4th century St. Basil the Great has a small community um, at his, uh, one of his estates uh, it's kind of this small group of uh, scholarly people you know, practicing monastic life uh, and it's sort of informal thing although he has a, a rule as well. Uh, later the Cenobitic Monastery becomes dominant in the West with St. Benedict who lived in the 500s and um, his uh, influences became combined with the ideas of St. Augustine who died in 430. St. Augustine in his theology rejected asceticism and saw um, monasticism as sort of recreating the community in the book of Acts and kind of put the emphasis on uniformity, the uh, lack of any individual effort or uh, struggle, because the uh, to Augustine salvation was only was only through grace, so there couldn't be any um, benefit to making individual struggles. And this <coughs> ultimately the combination of uh, Augustine's theology and Benedict's rule kind of transformed uh, monasticism in the West and made medieval uh, monasticism quite different than the type of monasticism that we will be talking about in the East. I just want to go back now to some of the kind of origins of monasticism. As I mentioned, although St. Anthony is called the first monk of the world, at the time and he's a young man in the 200s, there are um, already ascetic uh, elders that are living on the edges of the villages in, in uh, Egypt outside his village, and he you know, knows about them and actually spends time studying with them before he decides to go out into the desert. So there's already a large number of people who are living essentially monastic lives not in the desert, but on the edge of the desert in, in Egypt. Also later, uh, he's, he's in the central Egypt, down in southern Egypt, when Pacomius um, converts to Christianity and is interested in pursuing monasticism. There's a, an elder, Palamon, who uh, he goes to to get some instruction on how to live as a monk. So, although this kind of golden age period that we're going to talk about mostly <coughs> takes place between uh, Diocletian's persecution at the beginning of the 4th century and let's say, well, 
particularly, we could end it with the Council of Chalcedon in 451, uh, after which a large part of Egypt and Egyptian monasticism uh, split off from the Orthodox Church into the Monophysite Schism. But you could even say that the, uh, the fall of Rome was sacked by the Visigoths in 410. So that in a way, the, the, the patristic period and the early monastic period correspond with each other, and they're really, in this, this one century, uh, for part of which the western part of the Roman Empire was in a state of collapse, <laughs> that, uh, that most of our church fathers and a large number of the famous monastic figures were living all really at the same time in this one very brief period. So I'll, I want to concentrate on that period because that's when most of what will, uh, a lot of developments happened then. But on the other hand, to point out also that, that Anthony uh, lived a great deal of his monastic life before uh, Diocletian's persecution ever came about, and that he was definitely uh, not the first person, but that he was already a well-established monastic tradition uh, before he got started. So. Uh, another thing we should think about is a uh, person who has a lot of influence on the monastic tradition is Origen, who we talked about in the time when we were talking about the apologists, uh, and well, in the early school of Alexandria. He was the head of the catechetical school from 200 to 250, and Origen was living essentially a kind of monastic life, uh, not getting married, uh, living, you know, in, in poverty and hardship, uh, sleeping on the floor, doing ascetical, leaving ascetical life. And that was, uh, you know, already before Anthony. So it was not, so the ascetic life in the church is not something, as some people would imagine, that, uh, you know, comes about with the conversion of Constantine or, some, you know, that somehow that because of the, uh, the empire becoming Christian and the increased worldliness, all of a sudden monasticism gets invented. Uh, the, the ascetical life and monastic life exists you know, as far back as we really can see. And you know, by the comments in the New Testament, that it's really, uh, New Testament talks about uh, the widows and the virgins. So there's a kind of orders of nuns already in existence in the New Testament time. When, when uh, Anthony decides to go off and live, he, uh, he has a younger sister, and he puts her in a convent. So the convent's already there. <laughs> well, when the first monk of the world <laughs> decides to go out and become a monk. And, uh, it, but that's, so that's just something to keep in mind. We're not talking about a new creation, but a greater prominence, and, and for us, more information that we know about uh, and, and some very great figures. These were people that uh, lived outstanding lives and and accomplished great things. But so, but that, but they're accomplishing them on in a, in a continuity with the church's life uh, from the apostolic times. All right. Um, before talking about specifically about who uh, these people are. I want to just give some of the sources that we have for monastic uh, movement. I'm going to be talking about St. Anthony, 
St. Anthony was contemporary, the later part of his life was contemporary with the life of the patriarch of Alexandria, Athanasius. And Athanasius wrote one of the first, uh, what we would call, life of a saint, uh, sort of in, in that format. And it has the life of St. Anthony the Great. And this life is, uh, well, it's, it's some of St. Athanasius, besides being a great bishop and great theologian, uh, knew St. Anthony personally. And so <coughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful document to, uh, from a, a church leader, contemporary church leader, uh, talking about one of our, our great monastic figures that he personally knew and describing his life and talking about the theological implications of that life as well as giving us the information about what St. Anthony's life, you know, his, his uh, beginnings and, and what he was doing. The other, uh, one of the really kind of unusual, uh, unique sources is these, uh, de- these sayings, that we call them the sayings of the Desert Fathers, uh, the Apothegmata there. These were, uh, the, the monks uh, had little stories about things that happened among the mon- monks in Egypt, and uh, so they were they were recalled, you know, in a little story about what so and so did or he said, and these stories were all collected and then written down in various collections. There's a the alphabetical collection you can buy a pretty cheap copy. I think it's called the Desert Christian by a popular publisher set out. But there's a variety of collections of, of all similar type of material. There's another one that's divided up by uh, the different virtues, you know, on humility, on watchfulness, and such. There's also a book called The History of the Monks, uh, which was uh, some monks did a pilgr- made a pilgrimage uh, down the Nile, and uh, up the Nile, and, and they recorded their, the stories they heard as they visited the different monks. And uh, Palladius, a friend of John Chrysostom, also visited uh, the Nile, and he his book is called The Lazaic History. So if, uh, you could read that. And then John Cassian from France also uh, visited the Egypt for a while, and he recorded the things that he learned in, in uh, two books. Called one is The Institutes, which describes the outward life of monasticism and the institutional monasticism, and the other is the conferences, which describes conversations that he had with the monks and um, some of the stories about their life. So there's a a kind of very rich literature of recording the lives of these uh, fathers, and it's very edifying reading for us today. It's in all different varieties, especially those desert saints, but they're, they're very good uh, for us just to read and pick up and read. And They're, they're not uh, theological treatises. They're just uh, little stories about their lives, and it's, it's very popular uh, spiritual reading. The uh, monastic life in Egypt kind of focused initially on uh, three major... Well, let's say movements. The first, if you want to call him a, a, one person a movement, is uh, Saint Anthony, and he 
was a lay person whose parents died, was wealthy, and he, after their death, he decided to uh, give away his property and to go learn to live as a ascetic or monk out with the other ascetic monks out on the edge of the, of the wilderness. And then, after some period of, of visiting them, uh, he decided to go into the desert to try to live by himself in the desert. And, and this whole uh, account is described as a battle with the demons, that when he goes there, he's attacked by demons. And so the rest of his, a large part of his life is this, is this back and forth with demonic uh, attacks. And that his, his, his ascetical life is pictured entirely in a sort of military way as a battle against the demons. And that he goes, he's living in the tombs, the pagan tombs, uh, to attack the demons in their lairs. And going into the desert was also seen as kind of the place of the demons, because where people didn't live. But he was invading uh, the, the, the world of the demons, uh, bringing uh, Christ, you know, the life of Christ into this area. And so, when we, were, if you remember, when we had the uh, the accounts of the martyrs. Uh, well, anyway, we, we think of persecution, we don't call them, you know, we think in terms of persecution, you know, that people, well, people are getting killed somewhere, and that's bad, but the martyrs thought of themselves as in a spiritual war with, with the devil, and their martyrdom as part of this, as a victory against, against the demons. So, in a similar way, the monastics didn't just think of themselves as following a certain spiritual rule or, you know, maybe doing living a healthy kind of life or something like that, they saw themselves as specifically going to battle and making an attack on the demons in, in their, by their life, by going out and, and living uh, this life of fasting, of being cut off uh, from the world and with and the various good things of the world. He, so St. Anthony... Uh, later moved out further into the desert, and he becomes sort of the, uh, say, the archetype for uh, what we would call the life of the hermit or the eremitical life. And this comes uh, hermit or comes from the Greek word eremos, which means desert. So, the, say the desert life. They all, and they all end up living in the desert, but in this case, it means that you're by yourself. So, in English, we have that sense with the term hermit as a way of monastic life. And this came to be uh, seen as the highest form of the monastic life, that um, there are other things that develop, but that ultimately, you know, if you, the highest level would be that you could live on your own uh, and be in the solitude as, as a, a kind of goal. As well, and not the a goal in itself, but, but sort of perhaps the, the most difficult form of struggle. In, in, uh, shortly after the persecution, one of the young uh, pagan recruits who was taken to fight against uh, Licinius by the, one of the persecuting emperors was surprised that the Christians were helping the soldiers as they were being taken down the river. And so the, uh, when he gets back from the war, he wants to know who these Christians are, and he becomes Christian, and then he 
goes out and finds a, a monk and starts learning about monasticism and then decides to establish a monastic community in one of the villages of southern Egypt uh, around the, the Thebes. And the term, you sometimes hear the term Thebaid referring to a monastic area, but it comes from this person's uh, communities around the city of Thebes. And this was St. Pacomius. And what Pacomius did was he did not... Uh, he started out living with a monk who was out by himself um, along the river there, but he, uh, he, and he didn't go into the desert, but he found a deserted village along the river, and he repopulated that village as a monastery. And so he's seen as the beginning of... Uh, we call Cenobitic monasticism, or the, the monast what we would think of today as the monasteries, where everybody lives together in an organization or all in a community, and there's an abbot in charge and that. So this is a Cenobitic monasticism, which comes from Greek words uh, for life and kind of for common life. So. The hermit is living in the desert alone, and the, the monastic community, the Kenneth monastic community, is like as a group. Now, most of the stories that we have, there's also there's a, some lives of St. Pacomius, so we have the literature from there also. But most of the stories that we have don't come from either those connected with St. Anthony or from St. Pacomius, but rather from the deserts outside of, Al this is Alexandria. This is supposed to be the Nile. And, uh, Alexandria is a very large Greek city on the edge of Egypt. And it's, it's sort of funny because, um, you know, we think of Alexandria as being in Egypt. And so an Alexandrian and an Egyptian would think that's sort of the same thing because there's these two Macariuses, the Macarius of Egypt, Macarius of Alexandria. But the people that time, they didn't look at it that way. They looked at it as you were either a resident of Alexandria or of Egypt. Because Egypt was this area over here that was a Coptic uh, rural province. And Alexandria was a Greek uh, metropolis established by Alexander next to Egypt. <laughs> and they didn't, so they, you know, made it that was, so that's why those two people would never be confused to the people of the time, to us you would think, oh, they must maybe they're the same person, really. But uh, the, the, Alexandria was a huge city, very sophisticated, and the uh, center of learning is where the great uh, library of Alexandria was located. And this is where Origen was living. Uh, it was also a center of Gnosticism, and we'll talk about that because part of the, the life of... Uh, development of monasticism at this time is the struggle against Gnosticism and how to distinguish Christian monasticism from Gnostic monasticism. But just outside of Alexandria, uh, there was kind of the desert, there's like a, a ridge. The river is running along the valleys and then up in the, go up a ridge and then there's, that's the desert areas. And up in these deserts, there's right outside was an area called Nitria, and uh, this was settled by someone named Amun in 330, and with and thousands of monks started living in this desert just just outside the city, 
And this is where the apothegmata and many of the uh, writings have really are from. Now, ultimately, Amun, get, this gets too crowded there, so he moves out further to a place called Kelia, uh, the cells. And they were uh, initially, the people there would, would go into church at Nitria, they would hike across the desert. And then later they started having their own services in the Kelia. And then even that, finally there was a Macarius the Egyptian went out and found another place called uh, Skeet, which is way out in the desert. And that became another. So some of the more famous uh, aesthetics like, uh, well, Macarius the Egyptian, Macarius of Alexandria was in Kelia. Uh, some of the more famous fathers ended up in these more remote places Skeet and Kelly were very far back from the river, so that was, uh, they picked those areas because nobody was around and they could live a kind of eremitic life, but they, this kind of life was sort of in between. It was not, even in Nitria, where there were thousands of monks, there wasn't really uh, initially a community. I gradually, uh, Senate Menachemitic monasteries did start in Nitria, but the initial type of life was the life of the individual hermits, but hermits living in community and attending services together on, on Sundays. And we call it the anchorites, which uh, anchorites, and, the, and this collection of anchorites, sometimes called a lavra. So, a lavra, these are people. It's a, kind, it's a kind of church community, a, a Eucharistic community, but it's not like a Cenobitic community where it's life, an organized life uh, under the control of an abbot where he's deciding who's going to do potatoes and so on. It's the anchorites basically living their own lives and not necessarily seeing each other during the week and then on Sundays coming together for the, for the liturgy. This is and this uh, this area is between Nitria, the cells, and uh, Skeet. And actually, now our, our term Skeet Skeet is it means a, a small branch of a monastery is sometimes called a Skeet. But this I think initially is an area, not a. It's a, we name get our names from places in, in Egypt. So this is where when you're reading the lives of the desert fathers, this is where most of the action is taking place. Are there any questions so far on the different types of monasticism or really figures? Okay. The problem but that if we remember back to origin, uh, when he was uh, teaching, you know, he was the official uh, catechist for the Church of Alexandria, and he was being supported by a wealthy Christian in Alexandria, a widow. And but at the same time as she was supporting him, she also had uh, she was supporting a, a Gnostic teacher who was giving lectures on Gnosticism at the same time. So there was within the Christian Church of some confusion about well, you know what what the spiritual teachings are legitimate and which are, are not. And, and Gnosticism was a, a great threat to the Orthodox Church in the first, second centuries. 
and it was Gnosticism is the rejection of the physical world as being the creation of the devil that the Old Testament God is, is really the devil who, who created the material world and that God the true God only created the spiritual world so Gnosticism is there you know from the time St. John uh, in, the, in his uh, epistles and uh, in the book of Revelation he's confronting Gnostics and so from the time of the New Testament on, there are Gnostics. Origin is, is really competing with Gnostics. The difficulty, well, okay, Gnosticism continues into the fourth century in a, in a form uh, modified by someone in Persia named Mani, who was the, the founder of Manichaeism, who died right around a little after Anthony began his uh, ascetic life, and. Manichaeism was kind of a systematized Gnosticism which said that not everybody has to live a life rejecting everything in the world but that, that we could, the, the Manichae religion could be divided, was divided into two groups uh, you had the hearers who could live just an ordinary life but as a hearer you would be contributing to support the people who were really going to live the spiritual life the way it was supposed to be lived and this was uh, people called the elect and the hearers so, and the elect uh, lived they were not allowed to marry they were not allowed to eat meat and if you look at the hearers and the elect you could even say well see that sounds a lot like uh, the, the church we have lay people, that lay people get married, they lay people meet, and they, they give donations. And then we have monks who, you know, do the real stuff over there. They don't get married and they, they don't eat meat and they spend their time uh, doing all the prayers that we don't get to do. Well, Manichaeism was very successful. And even when you get sort of towards the end of this period, uh, to the life of St. Augustine, St. Augustine was a Manichae during the early part of his life. He went, when he went to Carthage uh, to study at the university, he, he became Manichae. He later converted back to Christianity, but uh, Manichaeism was a real threat. And part of what had to happen in the monastic movement theologically was there had to be a, a sort of a theological explanation or understanding of what is monasticism that distinguishes it from Manichaeism and one of the problems was that alongside of the Christian monastic communities you had Manichae communities and Gnostic communities coexisting in Egypt actually I mean just regular Gnostics lived in Egypt the Nag Hammadi uh, library was from the 5th century that's you know kind of at the end of this period so those people are around when we get to um, well, St. Epiphanius uh, is one of the, kind of the, he becomes bishop of uh, Cyprus, but he started out. He, he grew up in Palestine, and he lived in Egypt. And he was living as a monk in Egypt. And he was tempted by Gnostics who would come to him and try to recruit him into their Gnostic groups. So uh, Gnosticism, in its original forms and in its Manichae form, was the, a real uh, threat, and it was coexisting with. 
Christian masticism. And so part of how this is all going to work out is how to combat this. Now, Origen in Alexandria had tried to combat uh, Gnosticism back in the early 200s. And in many ways, uh, he was very successful. But in other ways, he was not successful because he adopted some of the presuppositions of the Gnostics uh, in order to combat them. The Gnostics say that the material world is evil and that the God who created the material world is evil. So the ultimate God is, is the bad God. Origen had to come up with a way of saying, well, no, how, did, well, how is it that, that's not, that the Old Testament God is not really a bad God? Well, he said, okay, the Old Testament God didn't really create the material world that we see today. He created, he just created spirits, and that was his good creation. But when we fell, that those good spirits that God created fell into matter. And that's how he got stuck in this evil material world now. So he answered the Gnostic objection to the God of the Old Testament. Okay, so we're no longer considering the Old Testament God to be Satan. Well, that's, that's good. But we're still considering that the material world that we have today is evil. And that's bad. Uh, so Gnosticism, I mean, Arjun answers Gnosticism but creates his own, uh, I'll say, his own heresy, which was the the basis. The basic part of it was the pre-existence of souls, in which you end up with that the material creation, um, the implication of the material creation is evil, and that our material life, although not specifically uh, created evil is a result of evil. So particular, so in the case of, of marriage, that marriage is a result of the fall in, in, the, in the originist system. In, in the Manichae system, it just simply, it's part of, God, of this evil God's creation, and it's part of the active evil of him. In origin, well, it's sort of an accidental evil that comes about as a result of our falls. Well, not, God didn't really want us to have that, but we just ended up that way. Now, Origen was one of the most uh, uh, prolific and influential Christian writers of the third century. The, he wrote many fine things on uh, the spiritual life and uh, on many topics, uh, answering uh, apologies, answering the uh, pagan attacks. But this answer that he made to the Gnostics uh, was a problem because it has this misconception built into it. When we get to, uh, well, we talked about the Cappadocian Fathers with the period, this is because this is really the period, you know, between the First and Second Ecumenical Councils, a large part of the period we're talking about. Uh, I said there was more to talk about with them than the just the stuff relating to the Trinity, and part of this was that. Uh, Origen was sort of the standard reading for young, uh, for people interested in the spiritual life, was that you would read books by Origen. So uh, Basil the Great, 
Gregory of Nazianzus. Gregory of Nyssa are what we call the Cappadocian fathers. And Cappadocia is not here in Egypt, but it's up by uh, modern Turkey. Well, they were uh, young men that were up there and they decided to go and live a monastic life themselves before they, before Basil became the metropolitan, he later became the metropolitan of Caesarea and the great church father. But as young men, they decided they were going to form a monastery uh, in northern uh, Turkey now. And one of the things they did, their sort of uh, activities, monastic activities, was to study the works of Origen. And our first, uh, we have now the Philokalia that you sometimes maybe have read. It's a collection of sayings of spiritual writers, uh, usually monastic writers. Well, our Philokalia is almost is made up of the writings of the Church Fathers, and it was collected in the 1700s. The original Philokalia was collected by St. Basil the Great and Gregory of Nazianzus uh, at their monastery in, in, in Turkey, and it was collected entirely from the writings of Origen. So you could see that Origen so has a tremendous influence. Now, insofar as Origen was writing about the spiritual life, this influence was good, let's say. But insofar as he was writing about uh, what we call metaphysics or, or theology of, of, uh, you know, of how uh, creation was and such, well, that was bad. Now, early on, um, Basil and Gregory Nazianzus uh, realized that there were problems with some of Origen's uh, thought, and they moved away from from his thinking, especially on this heretical point. Gregory of Nyssa, Basil's younger brother, uh, kept on uh, working with, with Origen's material longer. And another person, uh, Basil and Gregory, had a young deacon <coughs> living with them whose name was Evagrius, who also becomes a sort of great writer uh, he, he also studied Origen extensively and became himself a great writer on the spiritual life. Uh, Evagrius uh, later moved down and ended up in Nitria himself in the, in the cells and was a disciple to uh, Macarius of Egypt and Macarius of Alexandria. But the difficulty was that what they carried, Gregory of Nyssa and Evagrius carried with them from this early experience was a great veneration for Origen. Gregory of Nyssa, at the early part of his life, well, there was, there was beginning to be some realization, I mean, as I just said, among, among the fathers uh, that parts of Origen's writings had problems in it. So Gregory of Nyssa attempted uh, his, as a younger man to try to correct some of these problems and he wrote a book called On the Creation of Man uh, which you can find in the Nicene Fathers series in which he tries to Christianize some of this origins doctrine and he said well okay so God didn't really create people just as souls he did create he did create their bodies originally but 
He created their bodies and he created marriage knowing that, foreknowing that they would fall. So it really, he only did it because man was going to fall, but he didn't wait around until after the fall the way Origen thought. So in this way, he tries to avoid the heresy of the pre-existence of souls, but in fact maintains the heresy of that all this is really because of the fall anyway. Now, his sister, Melania, uh, St. Melania, kind of uh, corrected him on some of this point. So this, he gradually improved as time went on, although in his uh, great catechism, which he wrote later, although it doesn't have those ideas, he still has Origen's idea that ultimately everyone will be saved. Uh, which was one of Arjun's beliefs, is in the Great Catechism. But then, at the end of his life, he wrote some books on the spiritual life which incorporate many of Origen's ideas, let's say more positive ideas, about the spiritual life, but do not include uh, the heretical ideas. And one of these is available in English now, uh, called The Life of Moses, and this is a, a wonderful book. It's uh, not, not necessarily, you don't have to want to just be interested in the Old Testament. But for Gregory, uh, Moses is a monastic figure. He sees Moses living out there on Mount Sinai in the desert as, uh, as, as a monk. And that you know, this vision of God that he comes to is because he's living this ascetical life out in the wilderness. And it's also an opportunity for Gregory of Nisa to talk about the ascetical life and what it, what it is and kind of using the life of Moses as a, a kind of framework to talk about it. So if, if you are interested in, in a way, what Gregory ultimately does is he manages to synthesize, let's say, the good parts of Origen's spiritual theology with Christianity, that the heretical elements don't come into this book at all and, and kind of uh, come up with a spirituality or a theology of monasticism as to why, what is the monk doing? What is the ascetical life doing? It's both purifying the soul. Uh, it's helping us to come into communion with God with, and somehow shed, shed, get rid of this Gnostic and, and origin semi-Gnostic uh, errors. Kind of. So this this. Uh, it's easy to read and it's easy to find because it's part of this uh, Paulist Press Great Western Classics of Great Western Spirituality uh, so you can get that the other one that he uh, wrote the uh, Inst Christian Institute was uh, the text did not really survive very well until recently it was uh, only, only in the 1950s it was rediscovered and so that I'm not even sure that there's an English translation of but that's another great work on, uh, on the monastic life, which, although you can't uh, probably find it, you may have found it was reworked later by someone who we don't know who, uh, as the, you've sometimes seen this, uh, the, the homilies of Macarius, or there's a, the great letter of Macarius. Well, these were probably all written after Macarius had died, uh, Macarius the Egyptian had died, but the, the great letter of Macarius is a rewrite of Gregory of Nyssa's uh, Christian Institute. So that, that is available also in the uh, Classics of Western Spirituality series. So that, and, and what's interesting is that because Gregory of Nyssa's was so, sort of at the beginning of a lot of his theological development, his terminologies 
are sometimes uh, not standard. And so what happens in, in the, in the uh, great letter of Macarius is that the author uh, takes Gregory of Nyssa's thoughts and puts them into what has become kind of the normal orthodox way of speaking about these things. So it's actually even a sort of improved uh, edition of Gregory of Nyssa in that letter. Evagrius, on the other hand, <coughs> uh, also wrote, he wrote many nice things about the monastic life. He wrote a book on prayer and uh, a book, I forget the, what the other title is, but it's a book about uh, the temptations or demons or something. And uh, But then he, and uh, one of his books called The Chapters on Prayer only survives in the Philokalia uh, under the name of Nihilus, the solitary, because Evagrius did not make the transition. Gregory of Nyssa ultimately, uh, he re or, well, he realized that Origen was, was wrong, so he had to try to change Origen, and then he eventually just sort of dropped uh, most of Origen's errors. Evagrius does not seem to have ever come to the realization that there was any problem in Origen's writing, so uh, he, besides writing some nice books on Christian life, he also wrote uh, a book called the Kepalaya Gnostica, or the Gnostic Chapters, which is exactly Origen's doctrine of the pre-existence of souls. And so, uh, and he was here in Nitria kind of doing that, so what happened in response was that uh, there was a reaction uh, at the time of Evagrius' death against this, and it became kind of a big controversy. There was already started earlier when the uh, Epiphanius, who was over here on, on Cyprus, now after having earlier lived in Egypt, he's now a bishop in Cyprus, and he, he noted that the, the doctrines of origin were spreading. So he came to Jerusalem, where the, uh, to the Church of Holy Sepulcher, and gave a sermon against origin and kind of calling on people to repent of this origin's doctrines. And one of the, uh, the people who converted by, attended the sermon and, and took to heart what he said was uh, someone named Jerome, uh, who is a Western a scholar living in Palestine, is our St. Jerome, and he decided that that was right, that the, the doctrines of origin were wrong. And so he began work on this. And then later on in Egypt, uh, when Evagrius dies in 399, there's already some controversies. And then the Patriarch of Alexandria, at that time whose name was Theopolis, uh, ends up convening a church council in Alexandria to examine the doctrines of origin, and ultimately uh, they condemn the doctrines of origin there. The doctrines were later condemned again at the Fifth Ecumenical Council because among the monastic communities in Palestine they were later being revived. But uh, Now, what's curious is that uh, a number of our Historic, church historical sources were sympathetic with the originist side and they depict Theophilus as really just uh, catering to the ignorant monks who thought they call them anthropomorphites and they say, oh, well, they just think that God is uh, physical, had a physical body and 
these people were, you know, they didn't really understand anything. And so Theophilus was just uh, using them to get back at some personal enemies. Well, the problem is that uh, when you look at the writings of Evagrius, obviously Evagrius is sitting right outside Alexandria teaching completely heretical things. Uh, Epiphanius had already come to cause the big stir in Jerusalem by condemning the doctrines of origin there. There were many people who uh, didn't agree with that. And the uh, council of uh, 400 wasn't well, the only there was there's uh, letters Theophilus is, is writing letters about the originist doctrine of the preexistence of souls for years afterwards so and develops these arguments at great length so there's not uh, it's not just simply a, a, a move to just discredit origin or discredit a few people but the, the question of whether our physical bodies are really were created by God to be good maintained remained a question for some years and that's a real that was really uh, a theological problem that that had to be solved and so Theophilus by solving it uh, he's also a saint of our church and and uh, is considered a father because he pursued that problem and, and solved it so this is a you know, when we come to the question of, of marriage, when we, the Orthodox doctrine is that God created the world, a physical world. He created human beings with physical bodies. He created Adam and Eve. When He creates Eve, it's with for the institution of marriage. These are not uh, they're not something that come after the fall. These are not things that happen as Gregory of Nyssa had to sort of. Speculated uh, because of the fall, but just kind of because of the fall beforehand, but that this is all part of the good creation of God. And uh, Theophilus particularly brings up uh, the argument of marriage, too, that this is why uh, that God creates that marriage is good. Why would he do that if this is all just simply a result of the fall? Yes. Yeah, go ahead. How some, uh, what I wonder is how do you, how do you differentiate the Manichees from the Orthodox today? Thank you. Kind of the Gnostics, but I wouldn't understand Okay. All right. Well, so the difference is that for the Manichees, the material world is evil. So the reason you have you have your elect or your monks is because that you know uh, that really, as the Gnostics would have said of that you have to reject the material world. Therefore, you don't get married. Uh, you don't eat meat. Uh, it's because because the material world is bad. Now, Christians, Christian monks, don't get married either, and they don't eat meat. But it's not because of that. But it's because we see those things as good. They're part of God's creation. But we are that what what is developing in the ascetical theology, the sort of positive is that we are setting aside the good things as part of this struggle where, where uh, that the material as it developed that the, that the passions that God created us with our bodies and that the passions are the parts of our souls that connect to the body uh, that these are all actually good but in that the, what the fall has done is where we have subjected our spiritual uh, life 
to the needs of the body and to the passions. We allow the, the body to control the passions rather than the soul to control the passions. And so the, what the ascetic is doing is he's denying, you know, he's uh, sort of disciplining the body to discipline the passions to put uh, the spiritual, our spiritual uh, connection with God in charge of the rest of us. And so it's a restoration, uh, particularly Anthony, Athanasius brings this out in the life of Anthony, that with Anthony it's the restoration of the perfect man as he's intended to be. So that he goes through all this, all this fasting and he's out there you know, living this terribly hard life, but the result that Athanasius says, well, and, and yet you know, he, when he comes out of this uh, desert, he's not deranged, he's not uh, somehow... Uh, you know, all messed up, but in fact, he's now his, his uh, personhood is is in order, and he's a kind of exemplar of the ideal man because he's restored this balance. And so, uh, in the re- relation to the the life of the world uh, in the uh, in the world, the life in the world is not bad, but it's because of sin that we are fighting. We're fighting against. And, and to restore the life in the world to what it's supposed to be. In the case of the monastics, they give up uh, marriage, they give up uh, eating meat, but these are not um, because these things are wrong, but because as to take on more of this struggle. And so in the same way, even those of us in the world, we're, we're fasting, uh, we're uh, doing things, uh, participating sometimes in long services, we're doing things that are hard, not because it's it's a sin to sit in a soft chair or you know to to eat a nice steak, but but we're making ourselves do hard things to to recapture control of of, of our bodies and our souls, and that's so that's the difference. It's it's the Manichaeism is coming from a rejection of the physical world. The Christian approach of the monastic is that we are reclaiming the physical world that has been deformed by sin. And we're uh, using that battle as a way of uh, turning away from, from, real, from sins, <coughs> purifying ourselves, and coming into communion with God. And this is the image in the life of Moses. You can also find it in Gregory of Nazianzus' uh, theological discourse. It's the second one about the preparation for the spiritual life uh, is that, or for, actually for him it's the preparation for theology, for studying theology, is that you, you have to uh, turn away from sins but also to kind of struggle against the passions in order to have the spiritual, uh, in order to sort of purify the soul from the defile, from defilements of, of the world in order to be able to to uh, look towards God and, and to bring ourselves into a life of communion with God. So, I guess, so it's, it's, it's a life of here, I mean, this is not really a life of struggle, this is just a, a life of rejection. There, here, it's a struggle because we're struggling, because we, because we take the physical world, the life in this world, as good, as something redeemable, that can be made good, that can be brought into the kingdom of God, then therefore we have, and because it's 
because in a sense we agree that there's a problem. The Gnostics say, oh, the, wor the world is bad around you, so how can you, you know, so how can you say that God created it? Well, we say, okay, well, it was bad, but that's because we, we made it that way and we have to work to get it back, let's say, or at least in our own uh, personhood. Sorry. Okay. Is, is there any other questions? Yes. Uh, I had read somewhere uh, something that I eventually that I just figured out the other day by reading some other things that came from Origin, and that is the uh, that when Adam and Eve fell, the skins that God gave them mm -hmm. was their physical body. I mean, the, 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 what He taught was that that before they were just Souls, I guess, right. spiritual yeah. beings, right. and and uh, and so, but but actually, I think the original place that I had seen that was not from origin. It was some in some monastic literature or something, or it was it was it was attributed to somebody besides origin. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious to know: are you are you familiar with who else this, said that? Is this something that's is this a teaching that people actually? Hold to today. Uh, um, hopefully not. It's it's an it's an originist idea. Uh -huh. uh, we believe that the physical bodies were created at the creation of, of the of the world, um, and that that's part of the original good creation. The problem is that this process of you know Gnosticism, originism, kind of the process of clarifying what is the Christian doctrine was a process that took time. So even in the life of Gregory of Nyssa, actually uh, in the fifth ecumenical council, Evagrius was condemned along with Origen, and that's why his uh, his chapters on prayer in the Philokalia are under the name Nihilus, because if they'd been under the name Evagrius, they wouldn't be there. <laughs> but, but, uh, but Gregory of Nyssa was almost also condemned, but because... Uh, you know, most of his later writings don't contain those errors, and uh, he wrote many Orthodox things too. So his uh, his writings, you know, he was left uncondemned. But but definitely, uh, you can see, you know, that of course we'd say we don't consider any church father to be necessarily uh, perfect. You know, that, that because people are prone to error, an individual father may have mistakes, but very least in particular, uh, the originism is very clear in the early writings. It's, but it's, it's, so the result of that, unfortunately, is that every now and then, uh, somebody reading that or reading you know, the fragments of origin that kind of filter down or Evagrius, uh, not always, see, Evagrius is, uh, his, even his Gnostic chapter survived in the uh, Mesopotamia in Syriac, in a uh, orthodoxized form, where somebody kind of just changed them <laughs> a little to take out, try to take out some of the obvious heresies, and that you know continued. It wasn't until they uh, got the you know, original text they were saying, "Well, wait a minute, this is this is all completely heretical." But that's uh, and and then they could understand. Well, why did the Fifth Council condemn Evagrius? Because because what he was actually teaching was this Gnostic uh, preexistence, but. But these pieces kind of are all out there, so you will you'll come across uh, origins often in modern you know by people who more modern writers will will look back uncritically and pull out something that's a mistake and not not realize. A lot of times we're we look back at the early church 
early Christianity all as one big thing, and we just so so origins just as good as uh, Basil the Great, you know, and we don't we don't make any distinction. And but you have to, uh, the church clearly does make those distinctions. So we, we have to make those distinctions too. The uh, problem is not many not many people read the writings of Theophilus uh, against origin. You know, it's more more likely you'll read. Gregory of Nisa's on the creation of man or something. And it's just that uh, the accessibility that we have today often uh, warps the way we look at church history because we're not looking at it in the context of the councils and, and the decisions that church was making. Actually, Theophilus's writings are uh, translated into Latin by Jerome, and so if you have a collection of Jerome's letters, you can find uh, Theophilus's writings on origin in there. Yes? Was Theophilus origin bishop? Origin lived a great deal earlier. He was Evagrius's bishop, though. Okay. But he actually, this all kind of broke uh, the year. Oh, I should mention this uh, life of Apu. Uh, when he, Evagrius, the year Evagrius died was the year that the monks kind of rose up. Um, and initially, Theophilus sided with Evagrius, and then when he then he turned against after Evagrius' death, he turned against Originism, and that's where the others said, "Oh well, see, you're just you're just placating these these foolish monks that don't know anything." But the life of Afu is a Coptic life of a of a monk that just lived out in the desert, who heard uh, this doctrine that that we are no longer in the image of God. And so he went to find uh, Athanasius, uh, Theophilus in his uh, patriarchal palace and I guess had trouble getting getting in because uh, he looked kind of like a beggar out in the street and then finally got in and Theophilus, well, what do you want? You know, And he said, well, I heard this, that you know, you wrote that, that we're not in the image of God. And, and Theophilus said, well, how can you think that we are now because of origin, because well, now we're you know we're fallen and we're in the material world. How can we be in the image of God? And Afu points out scripturally how that is, and Theophilus converts in the life. And and actually, this then Theophilus comes out you know the next year with the with the uh, he summons the council, and these these uh, doctrines are condemned. But the question is not uh, as the originists say. Oh, it's just that the monks thought that God was physical. But rather that um, that the monks believed that man, when created, when Adam and Eve were created by God, that the, in the image of God, that they were created physically, and that was the point the monks were making. That Theophilus conceded finally, but this is certainly not what uh, not what Evagrius was teaching, and so that was a turning point. And if the life, you know, is correct, it's, it was a it was Afu who who uh, turned it around and got the Theophilus going to to hold the council. There was a first council in um, in Nitria that condemned Origenism, and then the next year a council uh, of bishops held in Alexandria condemned it, and then there was the uh, series of letters afterwards. Yes. I noticed that in my lifetime I reserved what seems to be a substantial attempt to rehabilitate origin on the parts of lots of Protestant Catholic scholars, and mm -hmm. as well as uh, uh, 
people on the fringes of Christianity with the, the New Age movement and so forth, uh, that uh, Gnosticism has come back to vogue. Yes, that's right. Well, and for two different reasons. I, I would say that, that the New Age people are doing it because origin uh, fits in. You know, and if you like, if you know, for people that are not traditional Christians who want to have a Gnostic, you know, super spiritual, uh, rejecting the material creation, uh, origin fits right in with that. So they want that. The scholars, I don't think that's their motive. I think, though, that they, what they, when Origen was condemned, um, a great deal of his writings were destroyed. And I think what the scholars' reaction is, is perhaps a, a, a fair one, that here was someone who was a major church figure in the, you know, the early 200s, who wrote tons of books on lots of different subjects and was revered. Obviously, uh, Basil and Gregory you know, spent their time clipping his, uh, you know, quotations for their book. You know, obviously, when they got to the, you know, they, everybody admired Origen's writings. And so, uh, the kind of total destruction and condemnation that, that uh, came on him, uh, to, the, to those scholars, you know, it's, it's disappointing because they're they're missing. You know, it's very hard. there are a lot of fragments, so you can reconstruct things. But but they're they're kind of feeling like well, it was overdone because here now we've lost you know a major figure of church history. That's very hard to to recreate. You know what he had to say because because so much was destroyed. And I think that's fair. It's just that even in what little we have, though, uh, unfortunately, heretical. You know, there are a lot of heretical things, even in, in some of the commentaries, pieces of the commentaries that we have. Of course, the, uh, the book we have the most of now is this uh, Unfirst Principles, and that's, you know, that's almost completely heretical, unfortunately, but uh, the, the comment even the commentaries, you know, have problems, and so I think from the point of view of the church's life, it, you know, wasn't necessarily a bad thing that a lot of his works were destroyed, because his influence... Uh, you know, was probably, and it's, it's still, you can see, you know, even in, in throughout, you know, in, in Russia in the 19th century and perhaps today, some 20th century people, uh, you know, that influence keeps coming back in, in a negative way as trying to, uh, a sort of semi-agnostic forms of Christianity, yes. It seems like some of these people, their basic attitude is that what we call orthodoxy mm -hmm. was basically the great conspiracy to stamp out the true Christianity by oh, yeah. origin. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's, there are people, right, who um, idealize the Gnostics. Uh, this book, uh, The Gnostic Gospel by Lee Pagel, uh, of course, uh, you know, it's because you're looking. They want. They don't like Christianity the way it is. So they imagine, well, whoever the Christians didn't like, you know, must have been a whole lot better than the current uh, church that they find. But what they they over idealize Gnosticism, uh, and it's hard to imagine that they could have, uh, you know. Themselves lived in a real Gnostic community, but you know. But I think it's just kind of out of a desire to, uh, to question the legitimacy of, of true Christianity. I think is what's behind that. Not not necessarily a desire to live as Gnostics uh, that, I, that I've noticed. 
<laughs> yes. Is it not true that there were at least some strains of Gnosticism that uh, basically said that uh, because the, the body is, is evil, mm -hmm. uh, you might as well make the most of it, you know, just oh, yeah. send it up, you know, uh, un completely unrestrained well, license of, of every right. sensuality. Yes, right. This is this was a problem that uh, St. Justin complained about when he was said, you know, that the, the, the conventional line is that when the Romans thought that the Christians were having incest and uh, cannibalism, well, that this was just a misunderstanding. But Justin the mar uh, martyr, or Justin philosopher, says, no, this is this is what the Gnostics were doing. And uh, Epiphanius, I mean, who was again, he's kind of this, he's right in the end, he's contemporary with John Chrysostom. His, uh, you know, when he was approached by Gnostics in the desert of Egypt, it was to the it was to join the immoral type of Gnosticism. Uh, so, yes, and and the and the immorality was very specific to Gnostic doctrine. It wasn't just immorality, just to live it up, but uh, but because of the rejection of the body and certain ideas they had, they they had very specific types of immorality connected with Gnosticism. Saint John in the Revelation. Speaks of the uh, the woman he called Jezebel. Jezebel. Yes, he right. Teaching the, the, the servants of God to commit fornication. Exactly. I think actually that's probably exactly what he's talking about. Is the same exact thing, because Gnosticism, in some ways, Gnosticism seems to have uh, been very consistent in its thoughts. Uh, there's, as Irenaeus points out, there's all each Gnostic writer has all totally different metaphysical schemes, but essentially. You know what Gnostic, the way Gnostics looked at things and the kind of practices that Gnostics uh, engaged in. You know, if you're looking at the Book of Revelation, Ignatius of Antioch, Irenaeus, or uh, this Empyreo, it's 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 pretty much the same thing. Yes. There's uh, at least one, if not more, uh, groups in the USA today that. Uh, uh, Pose as Orthodox monks, yes. uh, but they're actually Gnostics. Yes, you know, and uh, they uh, uh, one of them has two different 800 numbers: one for their Orthodox icon business, and the <laughs> other for their their Gnostic book business. Yes. And, uh, and their their abbot spends uh, six months of the year playing Orthodox abbot in, in the U.S. and the other six months in India as a, a, a guru. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's that's true. Um, it's a, pro a problem that we have uh, in the Orthodox world is that you know the the, the ancient heresies. Have come down also alongside of the church, and they also and they often clothe themselves in kind of orthodox uh, apparel. And orthodox sometimes even ha people have loose connections; they call themselves orthodox, or they have some vague connection to some orthodox jurisdiction, but uh, in fact are uh, heretical gr groups, or you know even kind of cult groups. Just it's, it's a problem. That's why the church needs to be very clear about its own identity and, the, and its own uh, traditional theology, preserving the that we're preserving the Christian faith unchanged. That we're not we're not uh, kind of just playing around with esoteric doctrines of some little you know group. It's, it's and, and 
sometimes it's a temptation because we want to compare ourselves with Catholics or Protestants say oh well yeah that's Catholic Protestant that's kind of ordinary Christianity you know come you know come to orthodoxy because we have something special back here in the back closet you know that we could show you but no that's not what we are about we are we are just saying we are just simply out public Christian doctrine from the time of Ignatius and Irenaeus is, and the, the apostles is we're keeping it unchanged we're not uh, about some special secret teachings we're just about the gospel and that's what is it? And those special secret teachings uh, were things that the church condemned, and we don't. Uh, we have we have to be pretty upfront about that, and not not allow ourselves to be uh, kind of drawn in as justification for for basically cults. Oh yes, uh, this thought is worth mentioning that uh, by the end of the fourth century there were many thousands, if not millions, of monks and nuns all over the Christian world. Yes. Uh, Actually, I guess I should just mention that I kind of ended here, uh, because that's where I am historically, <laughs> and this is where the, the West was collapsing. Uh, when we get to the Third and Fourth Ecumenical Councils, there was a schism in which a large part of the monastic population of Egypt went into the Monophysite Church, but by this time, uh, well, actually, the Skeet had was uh, devastated about the same time as Rome fell, well before, and monasticism was already shifting up into Palestine. So Palestine becomes the center of Orthodox monasticism in the fifth uh, and sixth centuries, until the really until the Muslim invasions, and then with the as the Muslims uh, advanced gradually, you know, Mount, Mount Athos now was sort of a refuge for the monastics of the Middle East. So uh, this monastic movement continues. It's just gradually been pushed around geographically by circumstances. So I, I didn't want to imply that uh, this monastic life, you know, kind of flourished and then died out here, but it's, it's definitely it's spread. And, and people like... Um, when John Cassian went back to the West, he established monasteries in, in Gaul, and then there's a whole monastic movement that spread through Gaul from that. And Athanasius, when he was exiled to the West, uh, he brought the knowledge of monasticism there, and Jerome kind of went back and forth and was part of uh, his letters and his presence part of a monastic uh, movement in, in Italy. So he had uh, monasticism, spread in the West and actually when you get to uh, Ireland uh, all these great uh, monks uh, and then the St. Columba came from Ireland to Scotland a monastic leader and the monasteries were the, were the ones who were spreading uh, the gospel to the pagan lands in the West which there may be kind of original inspirations were coming back in here in the, in the 4th of the century but uh, of course, St. Columba and evangelization of, Scot evangelization of Scotland was at the same time as the Fifth Ecumenical Council. So it's not, you know, we tend to think of them in different compartments, the Roman world over here and the medieval world over there, but actually these things are all happening at the same time, and they're all, St. Columba and St. Patrick are part of the same church that uh, St. Basil and, and Justinian, you know, the, the monasteries of, uh, of Palestine were part of. I'll talk a little bit about the Palestine ones when I get to those that period. Uh, monasticism in Palestine was just sort of beginning.
Epiphanius, who was from the area of Gaza, began uh, one of the first monasteries that were in the Gaza area before he became bishop in uh, Cyprus. But anyway, so this is <coughs> this is just sort of a convenient spot where we're ending. It's not it's not really the end. <laughs> Any other questions?